I've seen each of them individually, but never the whole band. That was good. That was a very complicated song, too. And then as you were singing, I thought, okay, young guys, they have, uh, they've thrown down a challenge to you. I need a young guy group now to come up and strut their stuff. And then an older guy group, and then an older lady group, and, and so on. Yes, the older ladies. I'll let you decide who's an older lady and who's not. All right, in the presidential election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln campaigned against slavery and its expansion beyond the states in which it already existed. In response to his victory in that election of 1860, seven states, seven southern states, seceded from the Union before Lincoln even took office. A month later, the Civil War began in April of 1861, when the Confederate forces attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Lincoln responded by calling for an army from each state, which led to four more southern states seceding from the Union. In September of 1862, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, making, making slavery, ending slavery, a goal of the war. And for four years, from 1861 to 1865, the Civil War went on. At the end of the Civil War, by the time that Lee had surrendered to Grant at Appomattox, three million men had fought over 6,000 battles, while 620,000 men died. That was 2% of the U.S. population at that time. Clearly a long, bloody costly war for everyone. And in April of 1865, less than one week after Lee surrendered to Grant, Lincoln was the first president assassinated. So he got to savor that victory for less than one week before he was killed. But before he died, and here's what I'm getting to, before he died, when victory seemed sure, Lincoln was asked how he would treat the Southerners after the Civil War. And he said, quite profoundly and quite poignantly, he said, I would treat them as if they had never been away. When asked how he would treat the southern states who had left and spent all of that money and killed all of these people, this outrageous war, at the end of that he said, I would treat them as if they had never been away. This is an example of grace. This is an example of extravagant, lavish, free, outrageous, prodigal grace. If I only had one chapter in the Bible that I could share with someone, I think I have said this before, it would be Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is comprised mainly of three parables that are simple and to the point. And in each one of the stories, the same thing happens. There's something that gets lost, something that gets found, and then there's a celebration. And as we wrap up this month in January of what I've called a consecration month of consecrating ourselves to God and reevaluating our priorities and what's important to us and the kind of person we want to be for 2020 or for the rest of our life because you really don't know how your life's going to go. How do you want to be today and then tomorrow and then tomorrow and then tomorrow? We will look at this wild 
extravagant father in Luke 15 in the way he treats his two sons. Now, oftentimes you and I give begrudgingly or half-heartedly or maybe not at all, but we're going to see in this story that the father, I need those kids to stop playing with that table back there if they're doing that. Hello, kids? I don't need you using that stuff on that table right now. Thank you very much. If you could step away from the table. There you go. You'll get to it later. Now I've lost my place. And it's your fault, kids. <laughs> this parable in Luke chapter 15 is often called the lost son or the prodigal son. But that's not what Jesus calls it at all. Jesus starts out the parable by saying a man had two sons. So he's not talking about one lost son. He's talking about a man. And this man had two sons. Now the word prodigal doesn't mean wasteful. It doesn't mean wandering away as if it applied to the son. The word prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant. It's someone that gives everything they have until they don't have anything left. The word applies to the father, not to the son. It's about someone who gives everything, who wastefully, extravagantly just gives everything he has out of love. So let's turn to Luke chapter 15, if you don't care to, as we say in Tennessee. Is it all right if I read my Bible in church? Luke chapter 15. Now buckle your seatbelts now. Come on, hang with me. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to set the context. Then I'm going to read the parable. So if you notice, one thing you always want to check out, in a parable especially, is you want to say, who was Jesus speaking to? Who were the listeners? What was He trying to accomplish? You don't just want to pull out a verse and say it means this. You want to look at the context. So in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. Then He tells them the parable of the lost sheep. Then He tells them the parable of the lost coin. And then He gets to this other parable. So He's talking to four groups that it mentions. Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and the scribes, the teachers, the elders of the law. So he's talking to, in their mind, the good people versus the religious people. He's talking to the non-religious people and the high and holy ones. All are gathered around him as he tells these three parables. And then down on verse 11 it says, And there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to fee feed pigs. So this is a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, telling this story to mainly Jewish people about a nice Jewish boy who ends up feeding an unclean animal, the pig. So you see the outrageousness of this story as he lays it down. The nice Jewish boy leaves home and ends up doing something that 
he should not be doing at all. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, there's a great phrase for redemption. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise. Come on, preacher. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now everybody's happy at this point except the calf. I can tell you that if the calf is listening to this story, he's like, what did you just say? The fattened calf? I better get a move on. You get that? You get that? Thank you. I'm here. Two shows tonight. I better get a move on. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, the fattened calf. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. See, that's why I like church to be a happy place. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and marching. Oh, wait, no, dancing. He heard music and dancing. That was an Adventist joke. And he called one of the servants and said, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave a me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Quite a profound chapter. And if I was a teacher, I would have my kids, if they were old enough, finish this story. How do you think this turns out? Because it's left there with the older son taking in these words. What does the older son do? Does he go in the house? Does he leave? I would love somebody to write a finish to this story. It would be leverly. So note the context. First, there's tax collectors and sinners. They're the ones that didn't follow the moral law or the ceremonial law, as did the religious Jews. The second group there was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They held to the traditions. They studied. They obeyed Scripture. They worshipped. They pray, prayed faithfully. So it's an easy mistake to take this story and make it this sentimental story about a boy who wanders away And he comes back and his dad takes him back. And to get all teary-eyed about it, to get all sweet and sentimental about it, when we read the story of this lost son who returns home and receives his father's unconditional love. 
But the original listeners, the tax collectors, the sinners, the religious leaders would not be melted by tears by hearing this story. They would be thunderstruck or offended or infuriated by the scandalous story of a father who gives everything he has to a son who didn't deserve it. How could a father welcome home a wayward son like that? Jesus' purpose was not to warm hearts, but to shatter their understanding of right and wrong and sinner and saved. Jesus is not out to make you and I comfortable. He is out to make us uncomfortable. He is out to make us see our selves in relationship to Him. And this story shows the self-destructive, self-centeredness of the younger brother, but it also condemns the older brother's moralistic self-righteousness. And Jesus says that both groups, the irreligious and the religious, are both lost on a trip to nowhere, and every understanding you have about lostness and foundness is wrong. Well, it begins suddenly with the younger son shockingly asking for his share of the father's estate because the share of the father's estate would be divided when the father died. And so by the younger son saying to his father, can I have my share of the estate now? He's essentially saying, my, my father, I wish you were dead because I would like to have my money now. It was very disrespectful for a son to ask his father, even now, any of you dads here, have your son come up to you and say, hey, do you have any, uh, you have any money set aside for me for when you die? Really? How's your health? Uh, you got a bad cough or anything? Here, take up smoking. Could I have my share of the money now, dad? Not too many dads would like that. It's like saying, I want my father's stuff, but I don't want my father. So the King James Version said that the father divided his living between them. Mine says property. He divided his living. That word is actually bios, which is the word for life. So it's not saying that he just gave them his money. He took everything that he was, everything that he owned, his property, his well-being, his dividends. He took everything that he owned and he gave his younger son his share, which would have been one-third compared to the two-thirds for the older son, according to the book of Deuteronomy. Now there's other words Jesus could have used instead of this word life, but he chose that word on, pro on purpose that the father was taking everything that he had and giving it to his son out of love. So then the younger son goes off and wastes everything. And in his darkest moment, when he's feeding the pigs, he comes to his senses and he devises this plan. And in this plan, he will return to the father, but he won't ask to be a son because he feels like he could never be a son again. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of the hired hands. In other words, pay me. And as you pay me, I will gradually pay back to you what I owe you. So even then, he doesn't sense the father's grace. He's saying, give me a chance to work off what I owe you. I could, I'll never pay you back, but, but hire me. Treat me like a, a hired person, but let me start paying you back. You see, but that's not what happens. And that's the incredibly scandalous part 
of the story. The son journeys home. The father is watching and waiting. And when he sees his son, he runs to his son. That's the outrageous part of the story. No stately Middle Eastern father would stand there and then run to his son. He would pick up his robe and run after him. He would stand there. Can you imagine the the Queen of England when she sees somebody? Hi! Hi! What does she do? She stands there and they come to her. And they bow or they curtsy because that's what is respectful to the royalty position. So the father, when he sees his son a long way off, it says that he's filled with compassion. That word, it's one of my favorite words in the Bible, that word compassion actually means your internal organs. It actually means your kidneys. It means you feel something down deep. You feel it so down deep inside that you feel for that person. Like we say, my heart broke over what you told me. I says, oh, my heart went out to you. It says, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. We say that too. So when they say the person was filled with compassion, they mean they felt it deep inside. And when this father who had given everything that he owed to his son that he deserved, that he didn't deserve it, but he gave what his son would have gotten when he died, and his son comes back now smelling like a pig, when his father sees him, he doesn't say, well, Look who's come crawling back. When he sees him down the road, imagine what he looked like, imagine what he smelled like. The father runs after him, filled with compassion. His heart is overflowing for his son because he loves him so much. And he runs up to him. So for those of us, you, me, who have felt like we have wandered, who felt like we smell like pigs, who felt like we don't deserve anything from the Father, this is a story for you. This is a story to hold on to when you say, I've gone too far from God. When you feel like I've done too much, He could never love me. You say, I might stink. I might feel like a pig, like I'm covered in pig stuff sometime. But I'm going to cling to Luke chapter 15 as my story. I'm going to believe this Scripture that I am that Son and how does the Father feel about me as I return to Him? He's filled with compassion for me. He runs to me and He throws His arms around me. Can somebody say Amen? So the younger son is confused when he sees his father run to him. He's got this speech all prepared. I want to be a hired hand. But he launches into that speech and the father interrupts. And he says, no, 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 no. Bring out the best robe. That would have been the father's robe. Bring out the ring. That would have meant authority, because remember they would sign things with the ring, seal it. Bring out shoes, because a slave wouldn't wear shoes. Bring out shoes, because you're not a slave. You're my son. And I'm going to give you three marks of being part of my family. A robe, a ring, and a pair of shoes. And the father's saying, I'm not waiting until this debt that you owe me is paid or until you think you can start paying it back because it's unpayable. You cannot earn your way back into the family. I will cover your nakedness, your poverty, your rags with emblems of belonging and family, and a feast will be made that we can rejoice. So he commands a party of rejoicing with a fattened calf, which would be a delicacy. 
Which is why the older son says, you never even gave me a goat. That might have been like, you know, the meatloaf of the day. You have meatloaf, and then maybe on Sunday dinner you have pot roast, you see. So he says, you never even gave me a goat. But with this one got the fattened calf, you see. That's the delicacy. And as I said, everybody would be happy about that except the calf. And the father, or the younger son, realizes that his father's love is not about possessions or money, but it's about his very life. That's why Jesus used that word bios, life, because the father gave his life for his son. It's not about money. It's not about possessions. It's about love and grace. So the prodigal, the wildly extravagant person in the story is the father, not the son. The son was ignorant and wasteful, true, but it was the father who lavishly gave all that he had. He lavished his property in a ring and a robe and shoes and a calf, but more importantly, he lavished his love and his grace and his acceptance. So when you give your stuff, when you are a steward of stuff, God gives you stuff, and when you use that stuff, you're really showing your love. So when you give your time, or like as a, as a teacher here in church, or you sing or something, the young ladies that practice, that sang, they must have practiced, let's say they practiced two hours. They gave that time out of love. So when you exchange your time or your money, when I asked you to give to meet the church budget, I'm asking you to love the church a little bit more. I'm asking you to love the Lord a little bit more because all things should be done in love. And you exchange your time or your gifts and your resources in exchange for love. Your time is really the only gift God gives you. And you exchange that time for working to make money, to take that money and exchange that money for food or for rent or for anything. All based on God giving you time and love. So when the older brother hears his younger brother has returned home and been reinstated, he's now furious. And now it's his turn to disgrace his father. He refuses to go into the celebration, to the feast that his father has thrown, and so he waits outside. And so again, the father must pursue a wayward son and take the initial action to bid his son to enter in. So that's the parallel in the story. The father pursues both sons. The father runs to the younger son. The father comes out to the older son who refuses to go in to the celebration of life for his brother. And so the older brother says that he has slaved for his father. He chooses a very strong word. He doesn't say, I have served you, Father. He chooses the word for slave. I have slaved for you, Father. I have never disobeyed you. You see, this is a heart that's full of, of law. This is a heart that's full of obedience rather than grace and mercy. So this is what he deep down thinks of his home. He isn't a dutiful, respectful, loving son. He's a sullen, disrespectful, angry Slave. He has obeyed from a begrudging sense of duty rather than unrestrained love for his father. So the father, instead of having one loving son at home, had a disguised slave. He had two lost sons. There's two lost sons 
in this story. One's lost afar, and one's lost at home. And the father responds very tenderly. He says, My son, despite you insulting me publicly, I still want you at the feast. All I have is yours. What a beautiful thing for the father to say. All I have is yours. See, he didn't know that all that he, all the father had, he already owned. All I have is yours. I'm not going to disown your brother, but I'm not going to disown you either. I challenge you to swallow your pride, to do the right thing, to show some grace to those around you. So will you or will you not show grace to those around you who have fallen and gotten back up? And that's a question to ask you and me. How do we show grace to those around us when they have obviously fallen and then they're attempting to get back up? Do we help them up? Or do we remind them of how hard they fell and why they fell? The Father reminds him, everything I have is already yours, but it was necessary that we should celebrate the return of the lost son is cause for celebration. Something was lost, and now it's found. Something was dead, and now it's alive. And more importantly, a father's love has been vindicated and shown publicly, and the family rename family name has been restored. And therefore, we live our lives with joyful hearts. You and I, all that we have belongs to God. And when he says, all that I have is yours, he means that. All the blessings of heaven are yours in Jesus Christ. We are stewards of every gift he has ever given us. Your time, your health, your finances, your church, your breath. It is all His. And it's only when we begin to comprehend the deep, deep love of the extravagant Father for us that we will respond in giving like Him. Cheerfully, grace-filled, thankfully, consecrated to Him totally. When we give, we resemble God our Heavenly Father. And that's the point of Jesus' story. To remind us what the Father is like and to entice us to imitate the Father, to trace the Father, to, to let the outline of the Father be seen in your own life. And when people see you, they'll think not of you so much, but of your Heavenly Father who you proclaim in word and in action. That's why Jesus said, when you do your good works before people, let your light so shine so that when they see your good works, they will praise God and not you. When we were singing today, and I said something to Letitia, like, good job, she said, praise the Lord. You see, that's a way for her to direct that praise to God. Small, but it shows a mindset. So I think of all the blessings in my life, my health, my ministry, uh, having the privilege of being your pastor, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, the country that I live in, the home that I have, the finances that I have that have been provided to me, the places I've traveled, the things that I've seen, the car I drive, the freedoms I experience, the list could go on and on. And your list might be similar or somewhat different. Yes, we all have hard times, but we are blessed by the Creator. Now, here's the part where I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat. So if somebody's sleeping, you want to give them a nudge so that when they wake up, they won't snore 
you know, from you. <laughs> Genesis 1.27 says that God created human beings in his own image. And the word image, God created us in his own image. Verse 26, verse 27 is the first time that word image shows up in the Bible. Well, it's the first chapter, so not too many places it could show up before that. But the word image means his drawing or his representation. Genesis tells us that we are created in the image, the outline, the shadow, the tracing of God. What we are represents God. We are traced from His image. When people see you, they should see the image of God in you. And if you've ever done that funny thing where you put your hand on a piece of paper and you trace your hand, the tracing of your hand, unless you're really bad at it, is the exact shape of your hand. This is what Scripture's teaching us. We are the exact tracing of God. We are made to imitate His character. So if He is an extravagant, generous God, then we are to be extravagantly generous as well. It's giving that makes us what we are. So this is a simple activity that I want us to do for a few reasons. One, I want church to be interesting and fun, especially for young people. And I want to bring out the young person in all of you. And I also want you to have something to take home. And I also want you to do something that will remind you that you are made in the image of God and by tracing yourself, you are tracing the image of God. And when you look at your handprint, I want you to think, God made me in His image. This extravagant, loving God wants me to be like Him. So if you notice, I've got four lovely stations with two piles of paper on each station. And on those papers is written, traced in His image, and also the date. My reason for putting the date was I thought, wouldn't this be nice if mom and dad hung this on the refrigerator and little Billy or little Sally, as they get older, their little tiny handprint will now be real big. You see how I think? This is what I think about during the week. So I want to give you about five minutes here. For everyone, there's four tables. There's two piles of paper on each table. There's markers. If you'd get up, and if you would go and help your young ones to do it and just do nothing but trace your right hand or your left hand, whatever you want, and take it back to your seat. You are the tracing image of God. Have fun. Do this reverently and lovingly and kindly and with your neighbors. Generous people that don't claim to be Christian. Lots of generous people in this world. Um, they don't claim to be Christian, but maybe what they don't realize is that the reason they give, generosity is a gift of the Father. So people that give and don't claim to be Christian don't realize that God is even showing His image through them. You can give and not be a Christ follower, but you can't be a Christ follower and not give. We are traced in His image. And so then the thought is not, well, how little do I have to give? What, what's the minimum that I can give and get away with? It is, how can I share this joy-filled life that the Father has given me with others? And so our head and our heart and our hands and our finances and our time and our goal and our thoughts and our actions are in tune with and connected to the love of His Father for His people because we are traced in His image. 
God has planted his generous, extravagant image in you. And all you have to do is say, Father, make me like you. Take away this heart that I have that is, that is bent towards selfishness. Take away this heart that I have that is bent towards uncaring and coldness and fill it with the compassion of Christ that is something that comes from down deep, outward to other people. So when the older son comes to the house, he hears the celebration going on. The household's dancing. And the Word says that they were celebrating, which means to be glad, to be delighted, to enjoy oneself, to rejoice. There's food, there's fellowship, there's rejoicing, and most importantly, there's the presence of the Father in the house. And so when the Father is in the house, whether it's your house, your home, your heart, your home, our church, the result of that should be rejoicing, celebrating, delighted in God, gladness in God. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And when we sense the joyfulness of the Father calling us, when we hear the music, when we hear the dancing, we should enter. And we should take on that same generous spirit that He has. It should become a part of our life. So as you look at your little paper, and thank you for doing that, look like it went well, may you realize that you are traced in the image of God and all that God wants to do, He wants to do it through you and through I. I, help me, me, because we are the hands and feet of God in this world.